And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's December the 6th, also known as St. Nicholas Day. Also called the Feast of St. Nicholas. It's observed on the 5th or 6th of December in Western Christian countries. The 19th of December in Eastern Christian countries using the old church calendar. It's the feast day of St. Nicholas of Myra. Now, as I said, this is December the 6th, 340th day of the year. 25 days remain till the year's over with. National Holidays and Observances. National Pawnbrokers Day. Put on your own shoes day. National Miners Day, National Gazpacho Day, and as I said, St. Nicholas Day, Mitten Tree Day, Blue Christmas, Celebrating First Responders, Gift of Sight Month, Operation Santa Paws, Worldwide Food Service Safety Month, National Write a Business Plan Month, National Tie Month, Tie Up Somebody Today, National Pear Month, and Universal Human Rights Month. Alrighty, um, in 1060, Bela I is crowned king of Hungary. 1240, the Mongols' invasion of Rus. Kiev, defended by Vavodi Dimitro, falls to the Mongols under Batu Khan. 1492, after exploring the island of Cuba for gold, which he thought was Japan, Christopher Columbus lands on an island and names Hispaniola. Uh, for those that are not familiar with Hispaniola, you'll find that in a lot of um, pirate movies. It's an island in the Caribbean. It's part of the Greater Antilles. It's the most populous island in the West Indies, the region's second largest in area after the island of Cuba. It's uh, the site of one of the first European forts in the Americas, La Navidad. 1534. City of Quito in Ecuador is founded by Spanish settlers led by Sebastian de Belalcazar. 1648, Pride's Purge removes royalist sympathizers from Parliament so that the High Court of Justice could put the king on trial. 1704, Battle of Shemkor. During the, the Mughal Sikh Wars, an outnumbered Sikh colossus defeats a Mughal army. The um, the Casa refers to a community that considers Sikhism as its faith, uh, as well as a special group of initiated Sikhs. Seventeen forty-five, Charles Edward Stuart's army begins retreat during the Second Jacobite Rising. Seventeen ninety, U.S. Congress moves from New York City to Philadelphia. 1803. Okay, in 1803, five French warships attempting to escape the Royal Naval Blockade of Sandomica are uh, seized by British warships, signifying the end of the Haitian Revolution. 1865, Georgia ratifies the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. For those who are not familiar with the 13th Amendment, that abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime. Otherwise, um, chain gangs would have been illegal. 
Alrighty. 1882, the transit of Venus, second and last of the 19th century, took place on this date. 1884, the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. is completed. 1897, London becomes the world's first city to host licensed taxi cabs. Prior to that, if you had a buggy and you had a horse, you were in business. 1904, Theodore Roosevelt articulated his corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, stating the U.S. would intervene in the Western Hemisphere should Latin American governments prove incapable or unstable. 1907, a coal mine explosion at Monanga, West Virginia, kills 362 workers. 1912, the famous Nefertiti bust is uh, discovered. 1916, World War I, the Central Powers captured Bucharest. 1917, Finland declares independence from the Russian Empire. Also in 1917, on this date, Halifax explosion took place. That was a munitions explosion near Halifax, Nova Scotia. Killed more than 1,900 people. The largest artificial explosion up to that time. 1917 also saw World War I. USS Jacob Jones, the first American destroyer to be sunk by enemy action when it was torpedoed by German submarine SMU-53. 1921, the Anglo-Irish Treaty signed in London by British and Irish representatives. 1922, one year to the day after the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, the Irish Free State comes into existence. 1928, the government of Colombia sends military forces to suppress a month-long strike by the United Fruit Company workers. It results in an unknown number of deaths. They were not exactly gentle in uh, convincing the workers to go back to work. 1933, United States vs. One book called Ulysses, Judge John Woolsey rules that James Joyce's novel Ulysses is not obscene, despite coarse language and sexual content. That was a leading decision affirming free expression. 1941, World War II. Camp X opens in Canada to begin training Allied secret agents for the war. 1956, a violent water polo match between Hungary and the USSR takes place during the 1956 Summer Olympics in Melbourne. That was against the backdrop of the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. 1957, Project Vanguard. Launchpad explosion of Vanguard TV-3 towards the first U.S. attempt to launch a satellite into Earth orbit. Of course, when folks got into orbit, we discovered a satellite was already there. Nobody claims it. It's called uh, the Black Knight. Still there, as far as I know. 1967, Adrian Kantrowitz performs the first human heart transplant in the U.S. 1969. Altamont Free Concert. At a free concert performed by the Rolling Stones, 18-year-old Meredith Hunter is stabbed to death by Hell's Angels security guard. 1970, they didn't understand the meaning of the word subtle. 1971, Pakistan severs diplomatic relations with India, initiating the Indo-Pakistani War of 1971. 1973, the 25th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Uh, the United States House of Representatives votes 387 to 35 to confirm Gerald Ford as Vice President of the U.S. November 27th, the uh, Senate confirmed him uh, 
92 to 3, but they had to have also the House of Representatives confirm him. He replaced Spiro Agnew, who uh, had to resign due to um, accusations of uh, corruption. Um, Gerald Ford was rewarded for his support of uh, the Warren Commission. In 1975, the Troubles. Flintham Police, a provisional IRA unit, takes a British couple hostage in their flat in Balcombe Street, London. That began a six-day siege. 1977, South Africa grants independence to Bafutaswana, although it's not recognized by any other country. 1978, Spain ratifies the Spanish Constitution in 1978 in a referendum. 1982, the Troubles. Irish National Liberation Army bombs a pub frequently by British soldiers in Valley Kelly, Northern Ireland, killed 11 soldiers and six civilians. 1989, the Ecole Polytechnique Massacre, also known as the Montreal Massacre, took place on this date. Mark Lapina, anti-feminist gunman, murdered 14 young women at the Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal. 1990, a military jet of the Italian Air Force, abandoned by its pilot after an onboard fire, crashed into a high school near uh, Bologna, Italy, killed 12 students and injured 88 other people. 1991, Yugoslav Wars. In Croatia, forces of the Serb-dominated Yugoslav People's Army um, conducted the heaviest bombardment of Dubrovnik during a siege of seven months. 1992, the Babri Masjid in uh, Ayodhya, India is demolished, leading to widespread riots causing the death of over 1,500 people. Now, the, uh, the Babri Masjid um, means the Mosque of Babur, the mosque in uh, Ayodhya, India, where many Hindus believe is built on the site of the hypothesized birthplace of Rama, the principal deity of Hinduism. It had been the focus of dispute between the Hindu and Muslim communities since the 18th century. According to inscriptions on the mosque, it was built in 1528 by Mir Baki, a commander of the Mughal Emperor Babur. It was attacked and demolished by a Hindu nationalist mob in 1992, which of course ignited communal violence across the Indian subcontinent. 1998 in Venezuela, Hugo Chavez is victorious in presidential elections. 1999, A&M Records, Inc. versus Navstar, Inc. The Recording Industry Association of America sued the peer-to-peer file-sharing service Napster, alleging copyright infringement. I remember when I started my first radio show, um, we had to get the, uh, the songs we were going to play cleared. Um, that's to be covered under the license of the station we were broadcasting on. Um, 2005, a Iranian Air Force C-130 military transport aircraft crashes into a 10-floor apartment building in a residential area of Tehran. Killed all 94 on board and 12 more on the ground. And as I've said many times, if you get hit by a falling plane, you're having a bad day. 2006, NASA reveals photographs taken by the Mars Global Surveyor suggesting the presence of liquid water on Mars. If there's liquid water, there could well be life as we know it. 
2015 Venezuelan parliamentary election. For the first time in 17 years, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela loses its majority in parliament. And in 2017, on this date, Donald Trump's administration officially announces a recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which was a major um, event. Okay, we have been talking about um, unsolved missing person cases. And it's hard to believe that in this country with all the computer databases that are available and fingerprint records and investigative agencies, folks can absolutely vanish. Unfortunately, what was the premier investigative agency in the world, the FBI, is now a little better than the Keystone Cops. Well, this first we're going to talk about a young man named Guy Heckle. Went on his first overnight camping trip with his Boy Scout troop on Saturday, February 3rd, 1973. He was an 11-year-old, fifth-grade student at Eisenhower Elementary School in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And he was a member of Boy Scout Troop 101. And he was so excited. He'd been talking about going camping for weeks. Sadly, his dream trip turned into a nightmare for his family. He never returned home. At some point, the first night, he vanished. He and his Boy Scout troop were camping at the Kiwanis Cabins near Cedar River in Lynn County, Iowa. And it was a cool night, temperatures hovering around 50, but the Boy Scouts were undaunted by the weather and decided to play a game of capture the flag in the woods surrounding the cabin. At about 8 p.m., the scout leader told the boys it was time to come inside and start getting ready for bed, and did a head count, and at that point in time realized Guy Heckle was missing. Now, according to a lot of the other scouts, Guy had been enjoying running around playing capture the flag, and none of them were quite sure when they last saw him. But the scouts and their adult chaperone spent the next hour and a half scouring the area for any sign of the missing boy. By 9.30 p.m., the scout leader realized they needed additional help and called the Lynn County Sheriff's Office. Well, immediately, all available Lynn County deputies, as well as members of the Marion uh, Police Department and civil defense volunteers, spent the rest of the night combing the Kiwanis Reserve looking for any clue to this young man's whereabouts. Now, initially, of course, officials were optimistic they'd be able to quickly locate the missing boy, but as hours went by without any sign of him, they became increasingly concerned about his safety. Well, they made the decision to stop the search about 2.30 in the morning. At 7.30 that morning on uh, Sunday, they started the search again at, as I say, 7.30. And as word spread about the missing child, hundreds of volunteers showed up to assist in the search. They combed the cabins, the outbuildings, the wooded areas within a mile radius of where he was last seen. They found nothing to indicate he was even in the area. Well, Lynn County Sheriff's Office Chief Deputy George Griffin told reporters that about 500 people were actively searching for that young man by Sunday afternoon. He said they were combing an area along the river about two and a half miles long. But they couldn't find any clues as to what had happened to the missing boy. 
Civil Air Patrol plane and a Civil Defense helicopter scanned the area from above while police and volunteers carefully picked their way through the rough and muddy terrain. And although the temperatures had remained in the 50s for most of the search, as the sun went down that night, the weather started to change and temperatures dropped significantly. Sunday drew to a close. Chief Deputy Griffin stated he didn't believe foul play was involved in the boy's disappearance, but without any solid evidence, he was unwilling to rule out anything. He told a reporter he thought the boy may have gotten into one of the backwaters or he may have just run away. Well, Chief Deputy Griffin also acknowledged there had been a rumor going around the boy had been killed as part of some sort of initiation, but the police really didn't put any faith in this particular rumor. They also heard his body might have been dumped in a well. Several wells in that area were searched and nothing was found. Uh, search radius was expanded on Monday with 250 searches coming through a three-mile radius around the cabin. Didn't find any clues to the boy's whereabouts, and his parents struggled to remain optimistic. His father told reporters, It's just faith that keeps us going. The Lord has taken his soul. I want his body. Many of Howard's co-workers, my old electric light and uh, uh, power company, joined the search for the you know, boy on Monday, and Howard Heckle, the boy's father, was touched by their willingness to help. Ms. Robert Claypool, who had been Guy's den mother when he first became a Cub Scout, was one of the many volunteers searching for the missing boy. She noted to reporters a guy was an obedient and cooperative boy. He and the type would go off against the rules. If you were to pick a boy in a family that something like this would happen to, it wouldn't be the Heckles. Well, the search group was smaller on Tuesday. Bloodhound teams combed over the entire camp area. One seemed to pick up Guy's trail to followed it to Edgewood Road, heading in the direction of Cedar Rapids. But the dog eventually lost the scent, and officials began to consider the possibility Guy was no longer in the immediate area. They turned their attention to uh, the Cedar River, noting it was possible that Guy had fallen into the water and been able to pull himself to safety. Search and rescue personnel used boats to drag the river while the Hawkeye Scuba Club methodically searched the waters. Well, on Monday, Wednesday morning, Guy's parents got a phone call that made him wonder if Guy had either run off or was being held somewhere against his will. Unidentified male called their home and told him he knew exactly where Guy was, and when Guy's mother asked him to tell her, he said, that's for me to know, for you to find out. The call was traced to a home in northeast Cedar Rapids, but when officers went to that location, they had found nothing related to the boy. They decided the call was probably nothing more than a cruel pr uh, prank. Heckles also got a phone call from a man who claimed he'd seen a child he believed to be Guy hitchhiking on a highway near the Kiwanis campground. He hung up before providing more information. Investigators traced that call to a Cedar Rapids payphone. The man that made the call was never identified. It's unclear whether he truly thought he had useful information or was just simply having a bit of fun at their expense. Well, the Lynn County Sheriff's Office also received several potential tips about Guy's whereabouts. One came by a traveling salesman who was certain he'd seen the missing boy at an Illinois gas station Monday morning. Came the boy told him he hadn't slept or eaten him more than 24 hours, and at the time, the salesman assumed the boy was just another runaway. But he became concerned when he later learned about Guy's disappearance. 
Well, police followed up on that tip immediately, but weren't able to confirm if the boy in question had been Guy or not. Well, investigators received calls from psychics who wanted to help find the missing boy, but much of the information they provided was just too vague to be of any use. One woman called after dreaming that Guy had fallen out of a tree and was injured. Some called and claimed he was a runaway. Others insisted he'd been abducted. One self-proclaimed psychic was certain Guy was hiding in a cave. No detectives filed these tips in a never-growing case file, but there was little they could do to follow up on them. On Thursday, more than 200 employees from Iowa Electric Light and Power Company assisted a, a search and rescue team from Sierra Madre, California, performing a comprehensive grid search of the area surrounding where Guy was last seen. By the time they finished, they were absolutely positive Guy was not in the area. Well, the organized search for Guy was called off on Friday, nearly a week after his last scene. Search teams had covered every inch of land surrounding the campground, while deputies and dive teams had spent countless hours combing through the Cedar River and its backwaters. But despite their intense efforts, they didn't find any trace of the boy. Although friends and family didn't believe Guy was the type of child who'd run away from home, Lynn County Sheriff uh, Walter Grant noted the failure to find him in the massive searches makes the runaway possibility to the more hopeful chance of finding him alive. Now, although the physical search had been called off, and County Sheriff's Office assured Guy's family they'd continue to follow up on each tip they uh, received. A waitress in Carlock, Illinois, told detectives she thought she'd seen the missing boy at the restaurant where she worked. The boy told her he had run away from his home in Iowa and had no plans to go back. Waitress was initially certain the boy had been Guy. The clothing he'd been wearing matched what Guy was last seen in, but when detectives showed her several photographs of the missing boy, she wasn't able to identify him. Sheriff Grant then admitted we were right back where we started. Well, desperate to find Guy's parents made the decision to send several articles of his clothing to psychics at the Physical Research and uh, Training Center in Richmond Heights, Missouri. And they hoped the group's clairvoyance might be able to locate their missing son using extrasensory uh, extra perception. Nothing came of the efforts. February 25, 1973, a man was fishing on the banks of the Cedar River when he discovered a jacket matching the one guy had been wearing on the night he disappeared. He was laying on a log on the east bank of the river directly across from the Dwayne Arnold Energy Center about a mile from where guy was last seen. That discovery certainly reinvigorated the search effort. Everywhere the jacket was found had been thoroughly searched during the initial search effort, making it unlikely it had been lying there the entire time. Now, the jacket wasn't fully zipped when it was found, leading investigators to believe it might have been ripped off a guy after he fell in the river. So search teams were sent back into the river in the hopes of recovering his body, but they found nothing to indicate he was ever in the water. Now, although they discovered the jacket had filled hopes that Guy's body had been recovered, search teams found no evidence to indicate the boy was in the area. Head of the Sierra Madre search and rescue team told reporters he was confident Guy wasn't within 12 square miles of our search area. Investigators admitted they had no idea what had happened to the missing boy. Well, February 28, 1973, the Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigation announced they were joining the search for a guy after learning that an unknown person had been prowling around the home of another Boy Scout just three days after Guy vanished. According to this boy's mother, the child experienced a series of frightening incidents of somebody shining a flashlight in his bedroom window. In the days following Guy's disappearance, the report fueled fears Guy might have been abducted by somebody who was targeting young boys. 
Well, for the next three months, the Linn County Sheriff's Office continued its hunt for Guy. They conducted weekly searches of the river, certain his body would eventually surface. By May, the water was at its lowest level since Guy's disappearance. And on May 24, 1973, search teams entered the water for one last time, confident they'd be able to find them if he was in the water. Once again, they came up empty. Long after the official search for their son was over, Howard and Nancy Heckle continued to scour the area for any sign of Guy. They walked along the banks of the Cedar River, scanned the backwaters, praying to be able to bring Guy home. In a letter to the editor of the Gazette, Howard said, We feel that there are two possible answers to Guy's disappearance. Either he did get lost and drowned in the river, or there's a remote possibility he meant with foul play and he could be anywhere, dead or alive. We're still praying for a miracle. May of 1974, Guy's family, along with the Linn County Sheriff's Office and our Bureau of Criminal Investigation, announced there was a $5,000 reward being offered for any information leading to Guy's recovery or to the person responsible for his disappearance. And though a few tips trickled in, none led them to any substantial developments in the case. Years went by and Guy's fate remained a mystery. In 1979 interview, Lieutenant James Nagel of the Linn County Sheriff's Office admitted nobody's ever figured out what happened to him. Initial assumption he was drowned was later questioned, according to Lieutenant Nagel, as extensive dragging operations in the area never found any trace of the young boy. He said, we used every resource in the county, aircraft, horses, scuba divers, boats, foot searches, checked out every lead, including possible abduction, and turned up nothing. Howard and Nancy were understandably upset that Guy was never found, but they didn't blame the law enforcement officials. They said, we're satisfied with the investigation. We don't know... What more we could really ask for? Howard admitted the uncertainty of their only son's fate was hard to handle. He said, we never heard a word about what happened to him. It's just like blowing out the candle, but we don't, I don't give him up hope that he's still alive. Howard credited the family's faith in God with helping him get through the situation. He tried to think about the good times he'd enjoyed with his son. I can't remember a day when he hadn't tugged at my heart, and I wouldn't want it any other way. We can talk about him and laugh about some of the funny things he did. Well, Guy Howard Heckle was just 11 when he vanished while on that camping trip in February 73. He was an intelligent, adventurous child who was popular with his peers, and he really loved being a Boy Scout. At the time of disappearance, he was five feet, uh, four feet, uh, five inches tall and weighed 60 pounds. Well, they're still holding out hope that they might find some idea of what happened. The next individual that joined our list of mysterious disappearances is the name of Rain Herbster. It was a mild spring afternoon when Lorraine Herbster finished work about four in the afternoon on Friday, March 9, 1979. She was a 17-year-old, started a new job as a laboratory technician at Microcircuit Engineering Corporation in Mount Holly, New Jersey. Been working there a week, she enjoyed the work and got along well with her co-workers. Didn't have a driver's license yet, and one of her co-workers volunteered to give her a ride home. Now, she lived in Tansfield Housing Development in West Hampson Township in New Jersey. Co-worker dropped off at the entrance to the housing development. was just a short drive from Microcircuit. Gloria waved goodbye to her co-worker and started making a six-block walk to her house on Whitlow Drive. Somewhere in that six blocks, she vanished. Never to be seen again. Lived with her parents, Terry and Betty Herbster, 
promised her mother she'd come straight home after work that day, and she wanted her mother to take her to a local bank so she could cast the paycheck she'd got on Thursday. Well, when she failed to show up, Betty wasn't all that concerned. Larry would often babysit for one of the neighbors on Friday night, so Betty thought she'd forgotten about their plan to go to the bank and just headed straight for her babysitting job. Well, when the couple got up about seven the next morning, they realized Lori still wasn't home. Betty called the neighbor whose children she regularly babysat and learned her daughter hadn't been there the previous night. So uh, she and her husband started calling all Lori's friends, but none of them knew where she might be. By nine that morning, Betty and Terry were starting to panic. Been no word from Lori, and nobody had called that they had called knew where she was. At nine that morning, they called the West Hampton Township Police Department and reported her missing. As they waited for police to respond, they discovered Lori's purse lying abandoned in their front yard. Now, Terry told the officers his daughter was not the type of teenager to run away from home. She had a close relationship with her parents, and she loved her new job. And she'd been looking forward to getting her driver's license. She'd already bought her, Terry had already bought her a car to use once she passed her driving exam, and the car was sitting untouched in the driveway. Betty told investigators that her daughter was a somewhat shy girl who liked to appear tough, but tended to stick close to the flute and riding her bicycle. Attended the Burlington County Vocational and Technical School at one point, but dropped out during her junior year. At that point in time, she was engaged to marry her high school boyfriend and was already planning her wedding. You know, the couple broke up in December of 78, and Lori decided to get a job rather than go back to school. Well, the West Hampton Township Police started their investigation by interviewing Lori's friends and co-workers, but none of them were able to provide any clues to the teenager's location. They canvassed the homes along the route Lori would have walked to get to her house and found one witness who recalled seeing the teenager walk past about five in the afternoon. Nobody saw her arrive at her own house. It's unclear how her purse ended up in her front yard. Tuesday, March 13, 1979, West Hampton Township Police set up a roadblock outside the entrance to the Tarnsville Housing Development. They stopped each vehicle to enter or exit the development, distributing missing person flyers with Lori's photograph and asking if anybody had seen or heard anything uh, unusual about the time she went missing. Unfortunately, nobody was able to provide him with any leads. Detectives weren't sure what had happened to Lori. They weren't able to find any evidence of foul play, but she had no history running away, and none of her friends believed she had left voluntarily. Despite extensive interviews with everybody associated with Lori, investigators were able to accompany any solid clues to her whereabouts. A co-worker that dropped her off that Friday afternoon was asked to submit to a polygraph exam to confirm his version of events. He passed it without any problems and uh, wasn't considered a suspect in the uh, girl's disappearance. On Thursday, March 15, 1979, the body of a young woman was found dumped alongside a road near the Dipford Mall in Dipford, New Jersey. Responding officers uh, feared that it might have been Lori's body, but they soon determined the body was that of an older female. Now, investigators conducted several searches of the Turnsville housing development and the surrounding area using bloodhounds and a helicopter, but they weren't able to find anything connected with Lori's disappearance. West Hampton Police Department uh, Detective Gary Stevens told reporters he feared Lori had met with foul play, pointed out she'd never talked to any of her friends about being unhappy at home, didn't take any of her belongings with her. She'd received her first paycheck for a new, from a new job the day before she went missing, and it was found in her bedroom. 
month after she was last seen, the investigation seemed to be at a standstill. Hoping to generate some new tips about their daughter's whereabouts, Lori's parents announced they're offering a $1,000 reward for any information leading to her safe return. And sadly, the reward failed to yield any new leads, and the case slowly went cold. Well, six months after their daughter vanished, Terry and Betty left the state of New Jersey and relocated to Alabama. Betty admitted I had to get out of the house. My husband got a job offer up here. She remained in regular contact with West Hampton Township detectives, but they never came up with anything new to report. Years went by. Detectives made no progress in determining what happened to Lori after she left work that Friday afternoon. Betty told reporters, this is something you don't get over. You still miss her. Still waiting for word. It's not knowing what drives you crazy. Doesn't get any better. March of 87, West Hampton Township Police Chief Russell Minuto decided to take a fresh look at Lori's case. He told reporters he'd received four phone calls over the course of a three-week period from men who uh, claimed to know what had happened to Lori. None of them were willing to give their name, and each one agreed to come to the police station to talk to him. None of them ever showed up. Although Chief Minuto was discouraged by the fact the men seemed to be toying with him, he couldn't let the case go. He said, I got to thinking somebody must know something about what's going on. I want to encourage these people to come in so we can solve this case once and for all. Now, the chief was certain the calls had been made by four different men. He noted all the calls had come in on the, as the eighth anniversary of Lori's disappearance was approaching. He said, my gut feeling was these calls were not pranks. Betty told reporters she was encouraged by the news. The police had reopened her daughter's case. She said, I gave up calling a few years ago because there was never anything new. And although she didn't believe her daughter was still alive, she wanted to know what had happened to her so she could have some measure of closure. Now, for his part, the chief told reporters he believed Lori had met with foul play. He said, I fear the worst has happened, and I doubt very much she ran away. Her case was the only long-term missing person case in West, uh, West, one more time, West Hampton Township, Terran Department wanted nothing more than finally be able to solve it. Unfortunately, if any of the four men who called really did have information about Lori's fate, they never called back to share it with the police. The case went cold once again. By 1989, Lori had been missing for a decade. A couple of her friends wanted to make sure the public knew the missing teen had never been forgotten. Diane Truitt, who had been Lori's best friend and close friend Liz Royers, never believed that Lori had run away from home. They were convinced she'd been abducted and likely murdered. To mark the 10th anniversary of her disappearance, the pair erected a billboard at the spot where Laura is last seen, corner of Rancola, Casa, and Holly Road. The billboard has featured a picture of Laura proclaimed missing but remembered, last seen here on March 9, 1979. Included the phone number people could call for any information about the case. Diane and Liz were hopeful it might encourage somebody to finally come forward with information needed to bring their friend home. Diane told reporters, I hope all this will come to something. At least one person has got to know something. Liz noted they just wanted to have some closure. She said it hurts. It hurts so much. We just knew what happened to her, bad or not. Sometimes I feel I wouldn't want to know, but now I feel it needs to be known. Now, investigators with the West Hampton uh, Township Police Admitted they hadn't had any new leads since the anonymous men called in 87. Were frustrated by a complete lack of clues as to what had happened to Lori. 
Detective Sergeant Bruce Reed noted, we don't have any idea. She left no trace. Bruce Reed would go on to become West Hampton Township's police chief. He continued to work on Lori's case. In 2001, he said, we work on the case actively all the time. Anytime a body is located anywhere and it's anywhere close to a match, we get a teletype. We probably had at least 300 or 400 possibilities over the last 20 years, but none of them were her. And he noted that uh, Lori's case was the only unsolved missing persons case in the township. He had a personal interest in the case because he'd been working as a patrol officer at the time Lori went missing. He said, we'd really like to find out what happened. Her name was Lori Rhea Herbster, 17, when she went missing. Brown hair, green eyes, five foot four, weighed 125 pounds at that time. Then we got... Keisha Jacobs. She planned to spend the night with a friend when she left her Richmond, Virginia home about 11 p.m. on the night of Monday, September 26, 2016. She's 21 years old. Sent her mother a text message at 11.41 confirming she'd made it to her friend's house. Told her mother she loved her and see her the next day. That was the last time Tony Jacobs would ever hear from her daughter. Keisha never returned home, was never seen again. Well, Tony knew something was wrong when she didn't hear from her daughter the next day. Keisha was extremely close to both her mother and her older brother, Devin Jacobs. She promised she'd be home early on Tuesday because she wanted to make pancakes for Devin, with Devin. When she didn't show up, he wasn't initially worried, assuming she had a late night with her friend was sleeping in. As the hours went by, he started to grow concerned. Tony went to work as usual on Tuesday and was surprised when she didn't hear from Keisha, who normally contact her frequently throughout the day. So he, she called home and asked Devin if he'd heard from his sister, and he said she hadn't been back at the house yet. So both Tony and Devin tried to call and text Keisha several times, but the calls went straight to voicemail, and she didn't answer their text messages. When she got home from work that afternoon, she called a lot of her daughter's friends and asked if anybody had heard from her. They all told her they hadn't spoken to her and had no idea where she might have gone. By Tuesday night, Tony was growing increasingly frantic, drove around the neighborhood, knocked on doors, and searched in vain for any sign of her daughter. But Wednesday morning, she couldn't shake the feeling something was terribly wrong and went to the Richmond Police Department and reported her daughter missing. At first, the Richmond Police seemed to brush Tony off as most large... Police forces tend to do on a missing persons case. They said Keisha was, Keisha was an adult and was free to come and go as she pleased. Tony pleaded with them to take her seriously, even pulling out her cell phone to show how many times a day her daughter would normally call or text her. There was no way Keisha would have gone anywhere without letting her mother know. Now, Keisha had always been close to her mother and opted to stay at home after she graduated from Richmond High School a number of years before. Now, although she was a popular girl with a lot of friends, she preferred staying home to going out and partying. That Monday night, she'd been somewhat troubled because she'd been arguing with her boyfriend. According to Tony uh, recalls, she was pretty upset. But her brother and I seemed to talk her down, and then she was like, Okay, Mom, I'm going to a friend's house. I'll be back tomorrow. Tony made sure that Keisha took her phone charger with her when she left the, uh, the house Monday night, so she's fairly certain the lack of contact wasn't because her phone's battery was dead. In the past, whenever Keisha found herself without a working phone, she'd use a friend's phone or text her mother so she'd know how to get in touch with her. In fact, 
the very fact that Tony hadn't heard from her led her to believe she was unable to get to a phone. She said, uh, she's not gone. I don't feel she's gone. I just feel that somebody's got her and she can't call me. Well, Wednesday night, several of Keisha's friends showed up at her house and admitted to Tony that Keisha had gone to visit a man who was renting a room in a house on Broad Street in the Churchill section of Richmond. Now, it's not clear why they didn't initially tell Tony this information, and she immediately demanded they take her to the house where Keisha was last seen. Tony knocked on the door of the Broad Street house and questioned the man who answered it. He admitted he knew Keisha through a friend and claimed he hadn't seen her since about 5 on uh, Monday afternoon. Tony told him this wasn't possible. She knew Keisha had been at home at that time. Then it went to another time and then another, and I said something isn't right. It's not adding up. Well, finally realizing the man was lying, Tony called the police and requested they meet her at the Broad Street house. Several Richmond police officers responded to the house before they could do anything. The man who lived there called a Richmond detective he'd worked with in the past and requested he be the one to conduct a walkthrough of the house. Tony felt this was odd. This wasn't a detective on Keisha's case. I found out later he's prosecuting for something else he did. So the question becomes, why did he feel so comfortable with this particular detective? Well, the detective looked around the Broad Street house and didn't find any of Keisha's belongings and nothing to indicate she'd been held there against her will. So with no solid evidence against the man who lived there, they declined to release his name to the public, noting he wasn't considered a suspect in Keisha's disappearance at the time. On October 4, 2016, a press conference was held to update the public about Keisha's disappearance. Tony spoke at that press conference. She said, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. I just want my baby to come home. Pain in her voice is clearly evident she begged for anybody's information to call police so her daughter could be brought home. Sometime after the press conference, Tony was contacted by the person who owned the Broad Street home where Keisha had last seen. The man who Keisha had gone to visit uh, was only living there temporarily, and the woman who owned the house was more than happy to let Tony search the house herself so she could see that Keisha wasn't there. As Tony went through the house, she didn't find anything belonging to her daughter, but she did note there were some bloody tissues in the trash can. Tony also realized there was a basement that could only be accessed by an outside door. And she feared the detective who searched the house Hadn't been unaware of this and hadn't checked to see if Keisha had been held there. And although Tony didn't find any trace of Keisha in the basement, she was haunted by the thought that Keisha might have been kept there against her will for a period of time. Well, Tony immediately called the Richmond Police Department and told them what she had found at the house, and they returned there. This time, they spent three days conducting a thorough forensic investigation. Dozens of crime scene technicians and canine units scoured the house. Many items of potential evidence were carried out of the house, but investigators refused to comment on what, if anything, they found. Well, investigators also searched the neighborhood surrounding the Broad Street house, paid special attention to nearby Chimborazo Park, a 30-acre area that once housed one of the largest military hospitals in the world. Its proximity to the house where Keisha was last seen made it a particularly interest to detectives and it was searched several times for any clues to Keisha's whereabouts. Richmond Police Captain James Lano noted that we searched the park, the area below the park. We interviewed anybody who had contact with her prior to her going missing, knew had potentially seen her within the last 48 to 72 hours. 
But in spite of all that, they weren't able to come up with any solid leads about what happened to the young woman. There were a few reported sightings of Keisha in the days and weeks following her disappearance, but none of them could be confirmed. Richmond Police Detective Billy Thompson asked for anybody who thought they'd seen Keisha to call investigators immediately. Give us those tips. Let us track down the leads. Now, Tony was still reeling from the shock of her daughter vanishing when she was hit with another tra tragedy in early January 2017. Her son Devin was gunned down outside of Richmond Motel. For Tony, it was devastating. Less than four months before, she'd been a happy, proud mother of two. Now her son was dead and her daughter was missing. Despite the unimaginable pain, Tony fought on, determined to get justice for her son and find Keisha. Well, Devin's killer was quickly apprehended and charged with his murder, though he would eventually plead to a lesser charge of involuntary manslaughter. Investigators determined his death was unrelated to his sister's disappearance. Months went by, but no progress on Keisha's case. First anniversary of her disappearance approached, the investigators admitted the case had stalled. Tony continued to do anything and everything possible to keep her daughter's name in the public eye, spending all her free time distributing missing posters, posting Keisha's picture on social media, working with several missing person foundations. Despite all their efforts, it was clear, unclear exactly what had happened to the girl. At a November 29, 2017 press conference, officials with the uh, Richmond Police Department announced that foul play was involved in Keisha's disappearance. Detective Thompson noted, uh, this is not a young lady that just decided to run away and move to another state. It's not her character to not call her family or friends in 14 months when she, could re when she would reach out to them every day routinely. Then he made another appeal for any valid information about Keisha to contact investigators. Although the Texas admitted they believed Keisha had been a victim of foul play, they stated they still had no solid evidence pointing to what happened to her. Despite the plea, only a few tips were received, and the case soon went cold. And it would remain that way for the next five years. Well, Tony continued to fight to find her daughter. She couldn't help but note the discrepancies between Keisha's case and that of Gabby Petito was reported missing in September 2021. In Gabby's case, the FBI joined the investigation almost immediately. Tony had tried to get him involved in Keisha's case, but he met only with silence. She said, I was pleading and begging him to help me. What made the FBI more eager to help Gabby than to help Keisha? I have made the comment many times that lately, the last few years, the FBI's reduced itself to nothing more than Keystone cops in suits. Tony couldn't help but think the racial bias played a role in Keisha's case and might have contributed to the fact that Keisha was still missing. Wondered if she could have gotten answers for, had police treated her daughter's disappearance with the same amount of urgency they treated Gabby's case. She said none of the things they did for her did they do for my baby. By the sixth anniversary of Keisha's disappearance, Tony was angry. For years, she'd refrained from publicly naming the man who'd been the last known person to see Keisha. Now she's ready to go to the press with that information. At a press conference, she held up a picture of the man and told reporters his name was Otis Lee Tucker. She was convinced he knew exactly what happened to her daughter. Otis Lee Tucker, who went by the name of Omar, had an extensive criminal history. September 19, 2016, just one week before Keisha vanished, he'd attacked another woman in the Broad Street house where he's living. 
Woman survived and Tucker was charged with abduction, rape, and strangulation. The rape charge was later dropped, but in February 2017, he was sentenced to five years in prison after pleading guilty to other charges. Well, Tony remained convinced that Tucker was responsible for her daughter's disappearance, but he was never charged in connection with Keisha's case and left the state of Virginia after his release from prison in 2021. Tony wasn't sure where he'd gone, but she certainly was a danger to society. He said, my main concern at this point is him doing it to somebody else. Well, less than two months later, Tucker was arrested and charged with second-degree murder and the death of Ashley Fowler of Jacksonville, Florida. Tony's worst fears had come true. She said, um, I'm angry and I'm disappointed. I'm saddened by the loss of that young lady's life. My heart goes out to her family. Well, Richmond police stated they were aware of Tucker's charges in Florida and been in touch with the police there, but they still didn't have enough to charge him in Keisha's disappearance. Investigation remained open and active with both a missing persons detective and a homicide detective assigned to the case. Detective Anthony Coates stated they're working hard on the case to get Tony the resolution she deserves. She needs closure. We'd like to help her. Well, Keisha, uniquely... Jacobs, 21 years old, when she went missing from Richmond, Virginia. The um, she was five foot two, weighed 105 pounds. Had palm prints tattooed on her right thigh, a flower on her left right hand, a heart and the name Tony on her left shoulder. So she shouldn't, if she's still alive, somebody knows something. Then finally. For today's show, we have Margaret Kilcoyne. Dr. Margaret Kilcoyne went to bed about 10 p.m. Friday, January 25, 1980. Her brother, Leo Kilcoyne, was staying at her Nantucket, Massachusetts home for the weekend. She asked him to make sure she was up by 6 in the next morning as she planned to attend an early mass at a nearby church. Leo agreed and settled into a guest room adjacent to Mar uh, Margaret's bedroom. He heard his sister's alarm go off early the next morning and went to her bedroom to make sure she was awake. He couldn't find her. At some point during the night, his 50-year-old sister vanished. Bitterly cold when Margaret went missing. Temperatures well below freezing. Her car was still in the driveway. And Leo couldn't imagine why she'd have gone walking out in such weather. He searched the house, didn't find any kind of note indicating where his sister had gone. Her boots and coat, as she'd normally wear when she went outside, were by the door. When there was no sign ever, by 7 in the morning, he called the Nantucket Police Department and reported her missing. Well, Margaret was a well-respected researcher and doctor who taught classes at Columbia's medical school. She wasn't somebody's teenage daughter that the police could dismiss as possibly run away. She lived in New York and bought her home on the island of Nantucket 10 years before to use as a vacation home. And she'd come to the island several days earlier to enjoy some time off from work told her relatives that research resulted in what she described as a dramatic discovery she was going to be announcing to the world in a few months. She was extremely excited by her discovery and planned to have a huge party to celebrate. Well, she started her health care career as a registered nurse, graduated from Boston Children's Hospital School of Nursing in 51, went to Boston University and completed a bachelor's degree and enrolled in the University of Vermont's medical school, graduated there in 1964. Completed her residency at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. After deciding her main interest of uh, study would be hypertension, she moved on to Harlem Hospital and became the director of their hypertension department in 1970. 
remained there until 73 when she took a position at Columbia University. In addition to teaching, she also continued to conduct research in adolescent hypertension. She published numerous papers on hypertension, was generally recognized as an expert on the subject. And she, everyone that knew her considered her very level-headed and said it was completely out of her character to voluntarily disappear. Well, the Nantucket police found nothing unusual in Margaret's house. Leo told him he hadn't heard anything out of the ordinary overnight, and investigators con uh, confirmed there was no signs of forced entry. Her bed was left unmade, suggesting she'd gotten up and left the house in a hurry. When asked what he thought had happened to his sister, Leo told investigators he was worried she'd walked in down to the ocean and drowned herself. Now, the detectives weren't so sure about that. They pointed out the temperature that night was minus 35 degrees when the wind chill was factored in. And they didn't believe Margaret could have made the mile-long walk to the ocean without coat or shoes. In spite of that, the entire beach for it was extensively searched, found nothing to suggest anybody had been out on that frozen beach. Now, the island was serviced by both ferries and commercial flights. Detectives checked all the passenger lists and determined that Margaret had enough to tuck, um, Nantucket by boat or commercial plane. Several private planes that landed and took off after after the small airport was closed for the night and there was no passenger list available for those particular flights. The um, detectives and volunteers scoured the entire island of Nantucket hoping to find some clues to Margaret's uh, whereabouts. Found nothing. After several days, the search was called off. Investigators admitted they had no idea what happened to her. And they were certain if they would have found her, she'd have been anywhere on that island. It was a little progress on the case until February 3rd, 1980, when four people walking their dogs around the island found Margaret's sandals, passport, bank book, and a $100 bill about a mile from her house. Items were neatly stacked in a clearing that had been searched thoroughly during the initial search effort. Investigators insisted they had not been there at the time. Well, after Margaret's belongings were found, detectives and volunteers conducted another, another massive search for the missing woman. They combed wooded areas, scoured the beachfront, checked inside unoccupied summer homes. Several helicopters and airplanes scanned the area from above, and divers cut through ice to search a nearby pond and around the perimeter of the island. Once again, they didn't find any clues about Margaret's whereabouts. Well, investigators interviewed anybody associated with Margaret, but none of them have shed any light on her disappearance. Richard and Grace Coffin, who owned a Nantucket gift shop, had dinner with Margaret and her brother the night before the doctor went missing. According to them, the, she had been in good spirits at the time, excitedly told them her research had led to what she believed was a huge medical breakthrough. She was very elated about the whole thing. And Leo agreed that nothing appeared to be wrong with his sister that night. She wasn't depressed at all, he said. And every indication she'd do something like suicide, what happened to her is a complete mystery. Well, as word spread about Margaret's disappearance, police heard from a number of people believed they had seen the missing woman on the mainland. Feeling speculation somehow managed to get off the island of Nantucket. Two people were convinced they saw her in West Yarmouth, and one man said she asked him for directions to Hyannis Airport and said she needed to get a flight back to Nantucket. Witness told police he was absolutely certain Margaret was the woman he spoke to and said she appeared to be somewhat confused. Well, months passed and there was no progress on the case. Um, to the police chief, um, the case has become an obsession. 
Hadn't been a day in the last two years, he said, when I hadn't tried to solve it. Years went by and Margaret's fate remained a mystery. January 1989, the case made it back into the headlines after her brother filed a petition to have his sister declared legally dead so he could dispose of her $200,000 estate. In his petition, he noted none of Dr. Kilcoyne's family or friends have heard from her. From all facts known, it's apparent Dr. Kilcoyne's deceased and not voluntarily away from her family, friends, and associates. Well, investigators disagreed with Leo's theory, pointing out there were no footprints on the beach and nothing suggested Margaret had been suicidal. July 1989, a probate judge granted Leo's petition, declared Margaret was dead in the eyes of the law, closing a nearly 10-year-old investigation into her disappearance. Although many of the investigators believe she's still alive, there was little they could do to prove that theory. She was, um, when she disappeared in January of 1980, she was 50. 1989, she'd have been 59. Uh, the circumstances surrounding her disappearance are murky, and it's unclear if she intended to harm herself or simply run away. Like most of the others we talk about, she was a small woman, only five feet tall, weighed 140 pounds. And when she left the house in freezing weather, it was appeared uh, to investigators she was wearing only her night clothes. Um, this, like all the other cases, uh, it'll be nice to have some closure. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow. And once again, you'll be listening to Ken Hudnall and the Ken Hudnall Show. And remember, tomorrow is December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day. And we'll be talking about uh, peculiarities with the Pearl Harbor um, attack. So until tomorrow, y'all have a great evening.